0: Welcome to the Gonzo Chronicles, I'm your host Cyrus Alderwood, the official spokesman for Generation X. Stick around. It's gonna get weird, as always. guys remember that that show that used to come on TV called Unsolved Mysteries? Well, that was a really, really great show. Um, I always enjoyed that. But the only thing is, you know, there's so many mysteries that are still out there that are unsolved. It's amazing how many are out there. High-profile cases, too. Uh, One that comes to mind, obviously, Jack the Ripper. Uh, Another one would be the uh, Casey, uh, not the Casey Anthony, but little JonBenet Ramsey. If you remember uh, that uh, terrible, uh, terrible case back in the early 90s. And who could forget some of the crazy stuff that happened in the 90s? Where's my Gen Xers at? How about the crazy death of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls? Who the hell killed those guys? There's all kinds of uh, unsolved cases out there. And I actually, I'm just going to bring up maybe a handful tonight that are not so well known. I wanted to bring these up on the show because there's so many unsolved cases that are absolutely fascinating that just really never sinked into the pop culture or stuck around long enough um there were uh, actually you know the, the one that you know high obviously high profile uh John John Ramsey um and that was back in 96 in Boulder Colorado and I know in recent years they've had some breakthroughs but they really haven't Really haven't found out who did that yet. They probably have a great idea, but just not enough proof. Another crazy case from the sixties and seventies: the Zodiac Killer. There's actually a movie called Zodiac with Jake Gyllenhaal in it. That's actually really, really good. A um, good representation of that particular case. And like I mentioned, Jack the Ripper. Um, one of the I think I talked about this uh, case previously on the show, but there was the Black Dahlia murder from 1947. And that was a 22 year old Elizabeth Short. She was found on um, the uh, 3800 uh, Norton Avenue in Los Angeles on that block in California. Her body was cut in half. She was so pale and drained of blood that the woman who found the body actually was mistaken and thought it was a mannequin at first. But the body was cut with surgical precision. Uh left no trauma or actually there was no internal organs. Uh no no trauma to the internal organs and bones. Her face was cut from her mouth to her ears, leaving this big huge smile, which kind of, you know, reminded you of the Joker, but this was again you know, before that era. Crazy thing was there's no blood on the ground when it happened. So the cops had to believe that the body was moved after she was murdered. Um Anyway, <laughs> that is an amazing case. And uh, there's a, a police officer, a former detective, a retired guy, who wrote a book called Black Dahlia Avenger, claiming that the killer, he thinks, was his own father. But I'm going to mention a few on the show that are un- like relatively unknown, and one that's very, very well known. But I kind of want to jump into a couple things here before we get into that topic. Um, there's a particular friend of mine. She's been on the show before, and uh, a couple times, and um, I'm not going to name names. But if you if you follow me on Facebook and if you follow her on Facebook, you'll see she's gone through quite a quite a recent bit of trauma and was in the news out in Utah, um, not for anything good, uh, but domestic violence. And that is such a terrible, terrible topic, and it actually is very hard to even talk about even with me, but. You know, she was going through such a hard time. She was smart enough to actually, where she has a podcast of her own, use her equipment to record what was being said. And so now the police have all that. And uh, this guy was saying, just I was reading the article that she posted online. And it was just, wow. Talk about somebody absolutely going off their rocker. Um. Her husband certainly did. It was clearly unstable and incredibly dangerous. Um, Not just dangerous to her, but dangerous to the community and society at large, if you listen to, you know, they had to beep out a lot of what he was saying because he was dropping F-bombs everywhere. But threatening Mm. civilian protesters, presidents. (laughs) Yeah, the guy was not just that, but then, like, you know, was very violent with her. But she's okay now. Um, but, uh, I mean, those those scars, they, they last. They, they never really go away, that kind of trauma, that kind of fear. And I've seen this in people where this has happened. And honestly, it's, it's, a, it's a sad, sad thing to say. And, you know, I'm no stranger to pissing some people off on Twitter. But, you know, I will say this. I mean, anybody, any guy who is asinine enough, stupid enough and just angry enough to go bullying and beating women around. You're not a man. Do yourself a favor, castrate yourself, move back into mommy's basement because you are not a man. I mean, that is absolutely my, my take on that. The only thing worse than beating a woman around is beating your children and both deserve a great a ass kicking. And uh, this guy, I hope he sees, you know, the strong arm of justice for, you know, what, what she had to go through. And not just that, for some of the threats this guy was making. Um, just unconscionable. But anyway, you know, sending some warm thoughts and vibes to her. Hope she's hope she's doing well. I'm not sure if she's, she'll listen to this show or not, but if she does, she knows who she is. And uh, we're all thinking about you and, and wishing you well. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up. Actually, you know, like I said, I'm no stranger to pissing some people off on Twitter. Well, apparently on my last episode, I made an off the cuff remark about Ben Affleck, and oh my God, leave it to somebody like that uh, spotted the Ben Affleck. I heard the Ben Affleck comment to drop an email. That's okay. It's okay. I did not accuse Ben Affleck of blowing Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> Let's get that straight. Um, I don't like Ben Affleck as an actor. He's a terrible actor. My only, the only thing I said on the show. If you go back and listen to the one I did with uh, E. Cooper. And hopefully she she may be listening. Hope you're hope you're recovering and healing well, um, and come back soon. And uh, uh, she's she's had some uh, medical issues she's been working through, but she'll be back. Um, all I said was like, how in the hell did Ben Affleck land all these major major roles? I said, who did he blow to have to get these jobs? And I was like, oh. Wait a minute, he was best friends, really good friends, and worked a lot with Harvey Weinstein. I wonder if he's crying me too, right about now. That's all I said. I just so I didn't say he was blowing Harvey Weinstein. I might have alluded to it. I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, some people don't have a sense of humor about it. Um but that that's okay. I didn't you know, I, I will give Ben Affleck, you know, kudos on a couple of roles. I really liked um Goodwill hunting. And, um, he, uh, he was, I liked going back to the Kevin Smith stuff, like clerks and, uh, chasing Amy. Good stuff. I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, what was, uh, uh, Batman Begins? No, that was the good Batman. That was, that was, uh, Christian Bale. (laughs) Sorry about that. I often tell myself, like, you yeah, if you're in a tough situation, what would Batman do? Not the Ben Affleck Batman. He's a wuss. But like the real Batman. What would, what would the cool Batman do? <laughs> ben Affleck. Anyway, moving, moving right along. Moving right along. So it's fall. The leaves are falling. I'm excited about that. The leaves have been changing. Those of you that know me know I'm colorblind. And, uh, well, partially colorblind. So in the fall, I get this whole kaleidoscope spectrum of colors. And I was talking with a friend the other day and uh, they were like, okay, some of the, in the fall, I always like to go on a little day drive and just see things, take pictures. And uh, I just enjoy beautiful scenery. And um, now I don't share a lot of beautiful scenery on social media. Like, or or sometimes on Instagram, I'll post some photos up there. Maybe I've taken, Um, because I love seeing beautiful things on Instagram. So if you follow me on there, You'll notice I follow like National Geographic, uh, the National Parks Guide, where I can see Grand Teton and Yellowstone, and and uh, just photographers from different genres. Where I can see just beautiful nature, like uh, New Zealand and Switzerland and Norway, and all this stuff. Just beautiful. I love beautiful photos on on Instagram. So um, I thought, you know, somebody said, so "What are some of the nicest you know places where you've?" Seen some, you know, where you would like to see something beautiful, you know. And I thought, well, you know, there's some, there's some places like I've, I've thought of like that where I saw some really, really beautiful things like that bring you like peace and serenity, or spark your imagination and creativity. And one of those is um, actually down at South Holston Lake, down by the dam. Um, I love going down there and just setting out when no one's around at a picnic table. One of the picnic tables there, just listening to the water rush, uh, w- watching the you know watching the water go by, I'm taking in this the sounds and the smells of nature, and I get creative. Actually, I've written, I've started book summaries down there. Um, really, really fun stuff. So I've been really creative there. But I tell you what, I would love to do some of my best work at that table because, um, especially when when the bees are not out. <laughs> so this is the time of year when all the bees and wasps die and go to hell where they belong. So there, there's that location. Um, I remember when I was younger, I would camp. I'd do, uh, do some camping over, over in Russell County. Um, it's a county over from where I live. And uh, there was this, this big, it's not going be a hill, but it's like this, a knoll, as you would call it. And not like the grassy knoll where Kennedy was shot. But I mean like this big giant here in the middle of the mountains. Uh, and hiking up to the top of that, laying a blanket down and just looking up and watching the stars wink at you. And just staring up at the heaven above you. Maybe have on if it's cold outside. Big, I don't know, a meaty pair of earmuffs or something that just covers the side. You know, your your ears, so they don't freeze and fall off. But, um, yeah, that that was a place where I, I I've actually went there. I've I've been I've I took a blanket up there one time uh, camping just by myself and probably laid there for two hours watching the stars. And it was just, it was beautiful. Before I went back down the the mountain to join everybody else and uh, by the campfire and you know call it a night. Um, there's another place uh well actually just right here in the spring when things warm up i don't know about you but there's something about standing outside just in a nice steady light rain i'm not talking about getting drenched but just standing there and just feeling the the water bounce off your skin it's so i don't know just back to nature especially in the spring when everything is it's maybe a little chilly but not not cold and on the on the back deck at this table that you can set stuff on, and a glider, and uh, sometimes just sitting there and, um, yeah, just just enjoying the view, looking up at the sky, you know, if, especially, it's if, you know, certain days, just where the clouds roll by, making shapes out of the clouds, whatever, it's just, sometimes it's just fun to do that, or sit there in the, you know, light rain and just not think, and just be, you know, kind of like that Eckhart Tolle kind of be here in the now kind of mentality. Um, you know, another place I'd really like to enjoy uh, just some sort of beautiful vision would be you know, in a lighthouse in the middle of a big snowstorm and just press to the glass looking outside and just, you know, enjoying, I don't know, just just enjoying maybe something coastal, you know, where you can see the snow laying on the beach, and on the rocks and, just coming down. I don't know. I've, I've seen so many movies like that. It's like, yeah, that would be a, an amazing place just to spend a night. And, you know, enjoy, enjoy the weather, enjoy the view. Um, also I had this place when I was in college, I had this apartment. It was really cool. I don't know if it was an apartment or a loft, what you'd call it, but it was my senior year and, uh, I had the staircase, a spiral staircase. that went upstairs and the upstairs part, it just led up to the bedroom up there. And when you got up to the top of the stairs, if you just sat down at the top of the stairs, if you, you know, you're your feet on a couple of stairs below, just look out this giant window. So has this huge window. And I literally almost had to break my neck by hanging curtains up, but I couldn't get it all the way up to the ceiling, to the top of the window. The window was just way too big. It was like almost the size of the entire wall. I've never seen anything like that since. But it was really cool because I got to hang curtains on the bottom half. But if you just sit there and lean at the top of the stairs, lean back on your elbows and just look out the window at night or in the or even in the fall when the leaves are changing, you sit and watch from the you know the uh, the hillside back there all these beautiful trees uh leaves changing and blowing in the wind and then even in the winter time just to right about right about the time you're you know it gets dark and, you know, right about dusk you just lean back on your elbows and stare out the window and just watch the snow come down or just look at how beautiful the snow is laying on everything after a you know 10-inch snowstorm or something. Anyway, be- beautiful beautiful scenery. And I'm a sucker for that stuff. So if you're on Instagram, um, you know, go find the National Parks and follow them. Go find National Geographic or um, Nat Geo Travel is another one that I do. Um, and don't laugh, but Kittens of the World, yeah. <laughs> I'll follow that one too. Uh, I follow Iceland, Norway, and New Zealand um, and Switzerland different a couple of pages from Switzerland. Some of this some of the scenic beauty is just, it's just breathtaking. So if you're not on Instagram, you do want and you're not on social media and you're thinking about doing one, consider Instagram because you know at least it's you can find something educational or some really amazing beauty on there to capture your attention because uh, I sure I sure have. Um, but let's get back to like some of these unsolved mysteries because I don't, I don't want to carry on too long here, uh, tonight. Um, now everybody's heard of D.B. Cooper, right? The strange disappearance of D.B. Cooper. I find this fascinating, but I've seen this one on travel channel and other, other types of, uh, shows where they're investigating this, but November 24th, since it's November, right? (coughs) November 24th, 1971. This man, identified as Daniel Cooper, bought a uh, one-way ticket uh, on Northwest Airlines from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. And uh, back then it was cheap. He could get a $20 ticket. So anyway, this guy Cooper was described as being in his mid-40s, had a business suit on, an overcoat, a white shirt, black tie, carried a briefcase, and also carried this brown paper bag. But before the flight took off, he ordered ordered this uh, bourbon and soda from a flight attendant. And after the plane was airborne, uh, he, he handed the flight attendant a note. And at first, she put it in her pocket without looking at it, probably thinking, hey, this guy's hitting on me, whatever. But then Cooper told her, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. Well, then he told her the bomb was in his briefcase and asked her to sit next to him. He opened the briefcase to reveal red-colored sticks surrounded by wires. And then he told the flight attendant to write down everything he was saying and take it to the captain. The note said, I want $200,000 by 5 p.m. in cash exclusively in $20 bills put in a knapsack. He asked for two back parachutes and two front parachutes. And he said, "When we land, I want a fuel truck ready to refuel. No, st- no funny stuff, or I'll I'll set this bomb off." So these FBI agents gathered all this ransom money from uh, different banks around the Seattle area. Uh, Seattle police they went and got the parachutes guy was uh, looking for from a local skydiving school. And when Cooper claimed his demands uh, were met, he. Uh, he uh, allowed all the passengers and some of the crew to actually get off the plane, in good faith. He told the remaining crew to refuel the plane, and chart a course for Mexico City while he was staying below. While and, and, and while they were flying, to stay below 10,000 feet. Well, during the flight, he put on a pair of these wraparound sunglasses, which uh, the one that everybody's seen in the official sketch, and he's been famous for that. And uh, a little bit after eight o'clock, somewhere. Between uh, Seattle and Reno, Nevada, they say, he jumped out of the rear door of the plane with two of the parachutes and the money. The guy was never seen again. And they have been looking for this guy for over 45 years. And they have uh, no, no conclusive uh, decisions have been made on the man's identity, uh, or even if he lived after he jumped. I mean, they, they never found a body. Uh, they never, there's, there's, some speculation that some people found some of the money, but they they can't be sure. And it's, uh, to this day, it's still one of the best cold cases in the uh, FBI history. Um, and you still see it on some shows today. Here's a strange one from uh not Arizona, Australia. And this goes back a ways. It's December, 1948 on Somerton beach in uh, Adelaide, Australia, uh, they f- body washed up. The, the body was a man uh, who was just dressed to the nines, right? He, shoes polished. Um, they found him slumped up against a wall. Um, they they thought maybe the guy died of like, heart failure or something or maybe poisoning, but they did an autopsy and they found no trace of poison. Uh, the guy didn't have a wallet or any ID, and the, all the tags in his clothing were cut out, which is odd. Uh, they took fingerprints, uh, but those are, are not identifiable. Uh, they even put a photo of the body in the newspapers and still no one knew who the guy was. So anyway, four months goes by. Um, the detectives, they found a hidden pocket that was sewn inside his pants. And inside the pocket was this rolled up piece of paper from this really rare book called the Rubayat. Uh, and and uh, that is spelled R-U-B-A. I Y A T. You go look that up for yourself. It's kind of a. I'm not sure what any of that had to do with him, but the piece of paper had the words uh, "Tamam shud" on it, and translation means it has ended. So after months of trying to find the exact book where this page was torn from, um, they decided that you know we're just going to go ahead and bury this man without any ID. They took a you know cast of his face, and um, they embalmed him to preserve him. Anyway, eight months later, this guy walks into a police station, and he claimed that just after the body was found, he found a copy of this book, The Rubaiyat, in the back of his car that he kept parked near Somerton Beach. Well, he thought nothing of it until he read about the search in the newspaper article, and sure enough, the book had a part of the final page that was torn, and it matched the piece of paper that was found in the man's in pants inside the hidden pocket. Well, inside the book, uh, there was a phone number and some strange code. They didn't—they didn't know what it was. The phone number—they—they uh, they called it and they found it belonged to a woman named Jessica Thompson, who lived nearby. They go to interview her. She's very evasive. You know, she claims she was going to faint when she saw the bust of the dead man, and did denied knowing him, but she did say that she did sell the book to a man named Alfred Boxall. Now, this guy Boxall was very much alive at the time and still had a copy of this book, The Rubiot, that Jessica had sold him. So, the code that was found uh, ended up being even more unhelpful, and today, despite people for all these years trying to crack that code, just kind of like the Zodiac, no one has cracked the code. It's still a crazy mystery to this day. And, uh, you know, I find, that, I find that really interesting. Now, on a previous podcast, I was talking about terrorism. And uh, I said, you know, the United States before 9-11 was really no stranger to terrorism. And I briefly mentioned uh, the Wall Street bombing of 1920. And a lot of people, it's surprising, like a lot of people haven't heard of that. And honestly, I had not heard of it until maybe 10 years ago when I found a book that was a fictional book, but written uh, with that event as the backdrop. And I thought, oh, wow, that really, really happened. So here's what happened, actually. During uh, this, the lunch rush on Wall Street, uh, it was in a September of 1920, this nondescript man driving a cart pressed... Uh, uh, an old horse forward in front of the U.S. assay office, which is right across from the J.P. Morgan building. Stopped his cart, got down, and then disappeared into the crowd. Uh, a few minutes later, this cart exploded to this huge hail of metal fragments everywhere, right? So it's kind of like what that Zarnev, Joker Sarnev guy did in the the Boston uh, Marathon bombing. You know, these pressure cookers, you put all kinds of little pieces of metal in there, and these... Turns into just dangerous shrapnel. Well, anyway, that's what this guy did. Uh, it killed more than thirty people. It injured three hundred. Uh, they say the you know the writing—if you read some of the papers back then, which I think you can find uh, some clippings online—they um, said it was just horrific. And then the death toll kept going up as the day wore on, and more victims showed up with injuries. And you know, it wasn't obvious. At first, that it was an act of terrorism. It was just viewed as some sort of an accident. So, maintenance crews were clearing up the damage overnight. and uh, They were kind of throwing away any physical evidence that could be crucial to identify who did this. By the next morning, Wall Street was back in business. So, anyway, conspiracy theory is going all around. Uh, but the New York Police and Fire Departments, uh, the FBI, uh, or the Bureau of Investigation, which was the predecessor of the FBI and the U S secret service were on the job to find out the truth. And uh, each lead was pursued. The Bureau interviewed hundreds of people uh, that had been around and, uh, you know, that before and, and during and after the attack, but they collected very little information. So people really didn't have many, uh, you know, recollection, uh, uh, recollections recollections, who the driver was or the wagon it was kind of vague. Some people describe the wagon as being one thing, and some another. Anyway, it was kind of pointless. And uh, anyway, the, the NYPD was able to reconstruct the bomb and uh, the fuse mechanism, but there was a lot of debate about the, just this, I guess, the nature of the explosive. However, the most promising lead actually uh, came prior to the explosion. Uh, a mailman had found four uh, flyers that were just like crudely spelled, and anyway, in the Wall Street area, to form a group calling itself the American Anarchist Fighters. And, uh, and then this group was demanding the release of political prisoners. Now, I don't I don't know much about that group. I didn't look them up, but the letters, they seem similar to the ones used the previous year and two bombing campaigns, which are led by Italian anarchists. So the Bureau investigated up and down the East Coast, all up and down, to try to trace the printing of these flyers, but they couldn't trace where they came from. Based on the bomb attacks over the previous decade, the Bureau initially suspected followers of the Italian anarchist uh, Luigi uh, Galliani. And he had committed the crime, but it couldn't be proved, and Galliani had already fled the country. Over the next three uh, years, hot leads turned cold, um, and all the trails just led to dead ends. Actually, they were also not just looking into anarchists, but communist groups uh, that were very likely to have done this. Um, And, uh, yeah, really, really interesting case because the bombers are never identified. And, uh, you know, here's an interesting case that was not very well known. This will be my last one. We'll keep this short. Um, Elsa Lamb. Now, if you notice, anybody who has Netflix, there's been this... Really popular series about what happened at the Cecil Hotel, and uh, and, and that's located in uh, downtown L.A. Well, in 2013, a uh, 21 year old Canadian tourist, Aliza uh, Lamb, checked into uh, the you know, the Cecil Hotel, but she never checked out what she was supposed to on February 1st, and nor had she had any contact with her parents. Um, so the police department was contacted. And this this is this case was weird. Uh, this um, anyway, on February nineteenth, eighteen days from the last time she was seen, Elisa Lamb's body was found floating and naked in the water tank on the roof of the Cecil Hotel. And her body was found uh, because because some of the guests that stayed there were complaining about the water pressure. Um, one couple even said that uh, the water was coming out black and had a bad taste. Um, so, according to the hotel manager, when Elisa Lamb had originally checked in, she was staying at a hostel style room with some other travelers, but later was moved to her own private room due to complaints from her roommates about just odd behavior out of this girl. The last time she was seen was on a surveillance footage on the hotel's elevator. The footage showed her acting well kind of weird, like she was hiding. Uh, she also moved her hands in weird uh, some said it was like in, inhumane ways. and it looks like she was talking to someone who was out of the security views camera or out of the yeah, out of the view of the camera. And after her uh, body uh, and the surveillance footage was found, they, yeah you know, I guess some people thought maybe she was on some sort of hallucinogenic drug. Even though Lamb took four different medications for a bipolar disorder, Uh, toxicology studies reported that there were no traces of any drugs or alcohol that could have contributed to her death. So even the medication she was supposed to be taking, she was not taking. Uh, There was also a theory that she was uh, murdered and uh, died as a result of drowning, but the autopsy report showed no evidence of trauma. So to this day, no one knows how she was able to access the roof or climb into the water tank and shut the twenty-pound lid by herself. So, some someone had to help. <laughs> someone had to help. So, anyway, if you haven't seen the the uh, Cecil Hotel uh, on uh, Netflix, it's if you're into true crime, it's certainly one worth touching, uh, taking some time to watch. And I think maybe in a future episode, I'm totally going to spoil Midnight Mass for anybody who hasn't watched it yet. That had such a Salem's Lot feel to it. Got to talk about it. But as for tonight, we'll, we'll call it quits. Uh, I appreciate everybody for tuning in. Uh, thanks again for uh, following me on social media. Uh, you're always welcome to follow me there on Instagram as well. Let's enjoy some beautiful pictures. Um, be back soon. And uh, we'll have another guest and another topic to talk about. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. So wherever you listen to your podcast at, um, make sure you hit subscribe. We're kind of everywhere now. iTunes, uh, Google Play, Amazon Music, um, Spotify, iHeartRadio, blah, blah, blah. And don't forget to jump over to Amazon. Hey, it's almost Christmas time. For the people that you know that love to read, I'd love for you to consider picking up one of my books as a gift for for, uh, folks. You can find me on Amazon.com. All my stuff is available on paperback and Kindle. I got several titles out there. If you know somebody that loves horror and you want to stick with short stories, bedtime stories for the terminally afraid and dark places right up your alley. Also, if you like comedy, don't forget my Gonzo Chronicles series. I'm on book three. I know it's slow going writing this book, this series, but I've had some other projects and been like just the regular day job that takes time. But, uh. Check out Gonzo, the Gonzo Chronicles of Barry Dook, Volume 1 and Volume 2, and uh, make sure you check out Pot of Gold. Oh, and also a special thanks to those who may be listening from the Frankfurt area. Last week, I was actually invited to speak to a group downtown at the Capitol Plaza Hotel about writing and the motivation behind writing, and you know, I made it very interactive. There were a lot of people who loved to write or wanted to write their first book, and did know where to start this that, and the other. I'm actually going to be doing some seminars in the spring, just writing workshops to, to help folks um, write their first book. Uh, those who haven't uh, had that experience, kind of show them what I've done right and what I've done wrong, <laughs> so that they can uh, avoid the pitfalls. But I want to th- I want to say thank you to those folks who invited me out to speak. I had a great time. We had a packed room. And uh quite a few questions from the audience, and even when the time was over, they asked me to stick around at the table as uh, people come up, and I got to meet so many different people, so it was a really good time, so thanks to those who had me there, and I look forward to doing more of those, so thanks again everybody for tuning in to the Gonzo Chronicles, I will see you on down the road.